Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets, where a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our country. I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Well, I'd like to start with a, a bit of feedback we got on okay. some previous discussion we had. We love feedback. Feedback is awesome. So we got an email from Steve Peralt. Uh, who writes on episode 164, you mentioned the film Big Night, which happens to be one of my favorite movies. I agree that it would be great to do a Secrets of podcast about this film. I'm also wondering if you have ever attempted to make Segundo's timpano recipe from the movie. <laughs> I've also been curious to try making it, but I've never been brave enough to try. Well, Steve, um, no, funny you should mention that, but I, I've never attempted to make it, but I've always wanted to. It's it's such a compelling it, image from that movie. And it's not a, apparently not a real like traditional recipe. It was invented for the movie. Really? I, I did a little research on that back in the when I watched The Big Night. And so there's this there's this recipe. The, the premise of the movie is that. Uh, it's these two brothers in the early 60s running an Italian restaurant, and they're trying to be what we would call an authentic Italian restaurant today, not like all of the red sauce Italian-American places like them. So they wanted to sell risotto, not just meatballs and lasagna and you know spaghetti with red sauce. Um, and they were having a tough go of it. And the big idea was we should get a big Italian-American celebrity to come eat at our place and that would put us on the map and drive a lot of traffic it's it would be like getting a uh you know a, a an influencer to come and take pictures of their food as they ate it and put it on instagram or tiktok you know that sort of thing so they they uh what's the celebrity's name louis prima louis prima right i knew it was lou something yeah louis prima the the singer was the one that they were going to get come to come and they're going to make this gigantic meal. And the, 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 what was it? The, the main course, the big deal dish was going to be this timpano. And it's a layered dish. Kind of like lasagna. It's kind of like it's molded. Right. So there's a, there's a a outer pastry. So you take kind of a bowl. It's called timpano because it's like a drum. It looks like a drum. And so you put this dough you know, in like in a bowl or something. And then you start layering foods in it and all kinds of stuff, pastas and vegetables and meats. And And I remember it had boiled eggs and sausages and all sorts of. Yeah, it was, it was like, as you watch this, I remember watching this going, I'm getting hungry. (laughs) It looks so good. I I remember the boiled eggs because that was like the point at which I was like, okay, now I'm not quite so sure about this dish because I, it had me until like the the sliced boiled eggs. And then I was like, I'm not. Sliced boiled eggs are in a lot of Italian dishes. But with, with the, I don't know. That was, that was the like. It's like an antipasto. But in any case, um. Of course, once the movie came out, everyone was like, how do I make a timpano? And so various people online were trying to recreate it. And I think even at one point Mario Batali was talking about it online. 
and you know what it would be like and how to, how you would make it and whether it would even be a practical kind of dish to make. So I kind of it it was a it's the sort of thing that you would make to feed a huge crowd. It would be it's a very, part, it's a fancy party dish. It's a, it's very involved. It's very big. And it would be very expensive to make because of all the different ingredients. So I never got around to making it. But I don't know. Maybe we should do an episode of Secrets of where you and I talk about the big night and then make some dishes. Maybe not a timpano, but something, you know, like some like risotto or something from the movie and talk about it. That would be kind of fun. But um, yeah, I've been trying to get (laughs) I think I mentioned this in that episode. I've been trying to get a group together to talk about the big night and I can't get a a panel. So Melly and I are going to watch it and then talk about it. That's that's just that's it. We've decided. So, um, all right. So let's talk about what's been going on. Uh, your dad. Last time we talked, your dad was here, and now he's gone. And now he is gone. It yes. was a quick visit. Yeah, he he had his slightest in among between his specialist appointments. <laughs> right, but uh, it was nice having him here. What, he was saying that uh, you talked to your mom, and he had been telling her that like one of his favorite parts was taking walks with the kids. Yeah. I think I think Sophie went with him a few times. Yeah. I think Ben might have gone with him once. Yeah. Sophie was saying how much she enjoyed taking walks with granddad. Like Sophie gets up really early and he he's an early bird, too. So they would be out and walking as like as I'm getting up, it's 630. They're already out and walking and gone. But she, I think she really enjoyed walking and talking with him on those mm-hmm. on those walks, which is really nice. I'm not sure if he. With his hearing, uh, he, he said aphasia. he said he said he enjoyed talking to her, and he was surprised at how um, interested she was in some of the topics that they were talking about. So. Nice, nice, that's good. I really wish that our kids had more opportunity to spend time with your parents, because especially where my parents are not available anymore. My dad just passed away. My mom um, is in a memory care facility. Basically, she's not really there for that anymore. So it's like your parents are there are their grandparents that they can interact with. Um, so, um, yeah, I kind of wish that they were that we were closer to them and we could they could do things with it, them. more. It would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, while your dad was we. Is your dad still here when we had the t- the uh, iced tea? Yes, he he was. So about a week ago, exactly a week ago as we record this, um, I had just finished my recordings for the day and was for the morning and it was getting lunch. And Anthony came up to me and said, hey, can I vacuum the office? And I said, sure. What, that's a nice thing. Go, go right ahead. Yeah, you can vacuum in the office. And as I'm eating my lunch, I hear this beeping coming from the office. I'm thinking that's the beeping of the uh, battery backup power supply. You know, in case the, the power goes out, my computers can still run for a little bit. So like, like if I'm in the middle of a podcast or something. And um, I'm like, he must have accidentally unplugged it while he, he was vacuuming. So I come in and he's dabbing at the desk. <laughs> and I'm like, why are you wiping the desk? Why is the desk so wet? Why is there iced tea everywhere? And I have this uh, Ikea desk, which is like a straight edges, it's like a table. And it was running that I had a, left a full cup of iced tea. I mean, I know you're not supposed to leave uncovered cups. A, if by full cup, you should clarify that this was a 32 ounce full cup. Yeah, that's right. Not 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 a little cup. No, it's not. It wasn't an eight ounce or 16 ounce cup. This was a big 32 ounce cup. And 
it was pouring off the back straight down into the UPS, the vents on the top. Uh, I could smell the magic smoke leaving <laughs> the, the UPS. Uh, I immediately frantically unplugged everything, carried the oh, the UPS out to the patio where it resides to, to this day. Cause I have to figure out what to do with these giant batteries. Um, and cause I was afraid it would catch on fire and something in a dramatic fashion. <sighs> And then I proceeded to have a panic attack for about 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I assured Anthony that I wasn't mad at him, that mistakes happen. Um, I told him I, I still love him. <laughs> there was no, there was no unrecoverable damage. Okay. So the, the UPS and the power strip all, that was also down there got uh, poured into. I didn't, I didn't trust that thing anymore. That had to go. So, Replacing those two things cost like 250 bucks, but I didn't lose any data. No computers were damaged. Uh, I had to scrounge some power, some power strips around the house and triage. Like these things need to be plugged in in order for me to get my work done. And these things can wait until the new stuff comes. And so we're back in business. The um, battery backup is now under the desk, not where anything can roll off of it onto it. There is nothing now apart from the power strips, which I, I don't know what I, if, if I can do anything about that, but um, I've tried to tuck things up underneath as much as I can. So Did you attach the power strips to the bottom of the desk. Uh, not really because it's, uh, uh, I mean, I might be able to, I guess that's a possibility. I suppose I could, the power strips. Um, there are other things that are attached to the bottom of the desk right now, including my computer. Uh, so I would need to look at it and see how it goes. But in any case, and, it, and you also now have a covered cup with a <laughs> with a lid and a straw. You know those those hospital mugs that you get. You know that with that very large with ice. In a, you might hear that on the on the recording. Um, it's got a lid, a straw. It's very secure. It ain't spilling. I hope. Um, I I still have a I still use my coffee mug because it's a it's a special coffee mug. But yeah, for iced tea, yeah. I thought it, all that was important was that I was careful with it, but it turns out that isn't true. <sighs> yeah. Live and learn. Live and learn. Uh, so the, uh, what, um, well, so just wanted to mention to folks that uh, if they can hear me on another podcast on the Starquest network, that the, an episode of Catholics of Oz, that's going to be out this Friday. I'm sorry, this Saturday, Friday. Um, Yes, this Saturday, uh, the time zone stuff messes me up and I was going to try to do the um, time zone for Melbourne and I'm not going to. Um, I think that's their Saturday, the Sunday. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> the, October 29th, this episode of Catholics of Oz will be out. I was on it with Lindsay Santa and we talked about the state of the of the network of StarQuest. And we talked about all the different shows and all the things that are going on. And and we also he did these um, ask me anything type questions that were themed to each of the shows as we talked about it. So he'd ask me like a Dr. Who question or a Star Trek question or a technology question and that sort of stuff. So that was kind of fun. Um, he, what was the Australia one? I forget. But we did, we did say that one of us has to visit the other at some point. We, we, you know, we, we've been you know working together for a while, but I said, no, no, I need to go to Australia. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, clearly, I need to go to New Zealand and Australia. I need to go to New Zealand because I need to go to Matamata where the Hobbiton is. And then I need to go to Australia. Um, oh, there was a, which Australian animal would I adopt if I could as a pet? 
What, what? I said, which one won't kill me? <laughs> Clearly you said drop bear, right? I Actually, I said koala, but I said because drop bears, you know, is the koala is the relative of the drop bear. I said I was tempted to pick the emu because of the great emu war, but mm. emus are a bad idea for a pet. <laughs> I was like, what What won't kill me is really what, what, what it comes down to. So that was a lot of Did fun. Did he have a suggestion? Uh, no, because <laughs> everything will kill you in Australia. <laughs> everything is working to kill you. So, um, yeah. And then Saturday, I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have any obligations, no scouts, no work. And it was a beautiful day. It and, was beautiful. And you decided we're not staying here. I am not staying in this house any longer, I think was how I put it. So what did we do? We went to the farmer's market, which we haven't been to. In, you haven't been to in, a week, in, in several weeks. Yeah. Um, And we we didn't get a whole lot. We got a few things. And then we went and picked up sandwiches and we went for a picnic at Wampatec State Park, which we used to do a lot when the kids were younger. Yep. Uh, but we had got out of the habit when it turned out the... There was nothing that wouldn't kill Lucy at the sandwich shop. Right, because she had uh, the allergies. Uh, so we, we picked up some sandwiches and pizza slices, and we went to Wampatuck, and we had a picnic, and then we went for a hike, much uh, under protest from all of the children who none of them wanted to go for a hike. Uh, some of them did. Did did not the older girls want to hike? Uh, maybe. Yeah. But <laughs> there, there was a lot of protest. There was a lot of grumbling about having to, like, they're scouts. This is what we do. We hike in the woods. Oh, and uh, and it's a such an easy hike because it's, they're paved paths through the woods. They're they, they're paved for for the for bikes, but they're such easy walking. Yeah, it was level. There was no hills. There was no. Yeah, I mean, there was a little incline here and there, but nothing bad. And so Wampatuck used to be in during World War Two, I think it was in, in the 30s. Uh, an ammo dump, an ammo depot for the military. I think it was into the sixties. Yeah, it was. Yeah, pretty late after after World War Two too. So there there were all these structures in the woods that just kind of randomly and like and you, you kind of like what was this? And we encountered one off the trail. It was like a large, a very large swimming pool with one end missing. I mean, is that a? Um, it was narrower. Well, it was. It was like a like a like a lap pool, but right, very, very long, very long, very long, and narrow, like longer than an Olympic sized pool, and and somewhat narrow, so maybe thirty feet wide, you know that sort of thing. Um, you know, so you had these concrete walls that were four or five feet tall, five feet maybe. I think they were five feet, and um, and the but in one end was open, and I think it might have been at one point an ammo um, storage area. Yeah, the about. Uh, on Wikipedia says that there are a lot of former bunkers, m- many of which have been backfilled. Um, and that looks like what this was. A backfilled uh, bunker of some kind. So the but the leaves but were with the, with, with the roofs off. Right. So. Right. Missing the roofs. Yeah, it was it was a known as the Cohasset Annex, the Hingham Naval Ammunition Depot Annex. Right. Which was in use from 1941 until 1965. It contains over a hundred decommissioned military bunkers. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff in that park, like out in the woods. Yeah. We saw at least two, um, two structures, the, that and that other concrete little shed that was there. Um, 
so yeah, it was it's kind of fascinating. There's a campground there. The scouts have camped there. Um, there are lots of uh, hiking paths and biking paths through there. So it's a really nice state park, very close to us. Uh, we have a lot of state parks near near us. It's kind of fascinating. Um, it's a really good area for this. So um, yeah, so that was it. Was a beautiful day, like bl- blue skies, cloudless blue skies. And then the, the, the leaves against the sky, the red and yellow leaves. It was gorgeous. It was really fantastic. Well, I have uh, pictures. I'll put a picture as our um, show uh, artwork. But I've also got pictures on my Instagram uh, of it. And it's really gorgeous. So, uh, yeah, that was such a great day. That was a good idea. And, you know, the I was thinking, like, going to the, the farmer's market, then getting lunch and we used to go to the farmer's market just to kind of put some things in perspective. Our budget for the farmer's market back in the day was about 60 bucks. We'd get out $60 in cash and we'd buy all kinds of fruits and veggies and some bread and other things like that. Yep. So this week was a light week, quote unquote. We spent 60 bucks. <laughs> we, and that was like one baguette and one loaf of bread, um, a handful of vegetables and uh, what else did we get? Uh, we did get a thing of smoked fish. Smoked fish, right? Um, and mushrooms. There's a there's a guy who sells mushrooms there. We got some oyster mushrooms, which were really good. Um, but yeah, that <laughs> we did not get much, and it was really wild. Just just like now, you can spend nearly twice that easily at the farmers market, and that's one of the right. reasons why we don't go as much as we used to, because it's so. Much more expensive. I, I wonder, is it just inflation or is it demand or I don't know. Everything's more expensive. Yeah. It, 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 it's, everything costs more. The farmers have to pay more for yeah all the things. I think it's been more expensive since the pandemic, really. Yeah. Um, well, in any case, it was a nice day and nice opportunity. And and. I was reminded of why we don't do the picnic either because <laughs> getting subs and pizza for all of us was expensive. All right. So let's talk about food we've been cooking and uh, there's two recipes I want to talk about. So I, over the last few months, we've had um, clam related. We had those clam fritters. Uh, we had lobsters over the summer. And every time we make something with shellfish, I always save some of the broth. So the clam broth or the lobster broth and freeze it because it makes really great soups or chowders, really. And, and, you know, see any kind of seafood dish. And so I had a couple of quarts, like two quarts plus two cups of both clam and lobster uh, broth in the freezer. I said, I want to make clam chowder and I want to make a good one. And I have a bunch of as you might guess, a bunch of different recipes for clam chowder in our uh, in our recipe book. But there was one I picked out that looked good because it comes from it comes from the Food Network dot com. But it's originally from Union Oyster House in Boston, which is one of the best seafood places in Boston. Right. And also one of the oldest restaurants in, in the United States. It, I think it dates back to se- the 1700s. The, the, the colonial revolution, you know, the, the American Revolution was fomented in the Union Oyster House. Right. Like people met there and plotted against the British. <laughs> right. Which is awesome. You and I went there to meet your uncle. My uncle Jim. Ages came, ago. Yeah. My uncle Jim came into Boston for 
business and we met him there for dinner when Bella was a baby. Yeah. I, I think I was that. maybe pregnant with Sophie at the time. Maybe. But Bella was in a stroller. Like she yeah, was. Bella was like baby I remember baby. she I remember she ate some of the menu, like the paper. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not the food, the menu. So um yeah, and they're they're well known for their chowder. So I said, oh, I, uh, let me make their chowder. And I, I mean, I'm looking at this recipe and it was this is I usually have to scale up recipes to, to feed our whole family. This one I did not have to scale. So it starts with 10 cups of clam juice. That's two quarts plus two, two and a half quarts of clam juice. That's a lot of clam juice. Yes. So uh, which I had because I had <laughs> saved in the freezer, but I used almost all of it. Um, two pounds of potatoes, four pounds of fresh or frozen clams shelled and diced. Four pounds. I had a pound, and I think that was plenty. There was plenty of clams in it. I I actually prefer lighter on the clams yeah. anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, I love the, the clams in it, but like, I, I was thinking, do they mean with the shell, like four pounds from the market? Oh, maybe. Like four pounds, four pounds of clams, then shelled and diced. But although it says fresh or frozen, so I don't know. This is ambiguous. It is ambiguous. One pound was plenty. Uh, then it calls for a quarter pound of salt pork dice, which I would have used salt pork if I had it, but I didn't have it. So I use bacon. I like bacon better anyway. And I used the whole pound of bacon. It was good. <laughs> it was really it good. Was bacony. Uh, onion, a cup of butter, a cup of flour, half and half. I used so two pints of half and half, which is again that's that's a quart right two pints yes two pints is a quart it's weird that they have it as two pints and not just a quart but anyway i wonder if they, that was scaled up at some point yeah. which it's lucky i bought a i had to buy a half gallon of half and half at the store because they didn't have quarts uh because melanie wants half and half in her tea uh so i used half and half and also um some heavy cream that was still left over from a right. previous recipe um so the interesting thing is you dice the potatoes and you put them in the clam juice and boil them until they're tender. So you're infusing the potatoes with that clam flavor. Okay. And then you add, you know, you do that for about 10 minutes. Then you add the clams and any liquid that they have, where they often come in liquid. And you cook those for about five minutes and set it aside. Then you take the salt pork or bacon and cook it over low heat in a different pan until it's uh, rendered. You've rendered the fat. I poured out most of the bacon fat and saved that. I put that in the fridge and kept half of the bacon fat, I think. Then you add the onions, cook them, and then you add the butter, melt the butter. Then you add the flour and you're making a roux, basically. A light roux. You're not cooking it heavily. It's, you know, you're not making it tan or copper or anything like that. It's a light roux. And you're just cooking it until the flour is cooked. Then you add it back to the clam potato broth that's that's that you bring it back to a boil add that in gradually stir in the cooked roux bring it to a rolling boil thicken it up then you add the half and half Uh, i also added carrot and celery chopped uh, minced up pretty good like chopped pretty not fine but chopped small uh we have to chop it small so that children can't eat around them Yeah, this is uh, this is the children who don't eat vegetables need vegetables in their diet and will eat things like soup. So we make sure that there's extra veggies in them. Right. So I cooked those with the onions at the same time. So that that Plus, worked out well. Carrots and celery are yummy. But yeah, I like carrots and celery in my in my chowder. I'm, I'm, that's my one you know heathen 
heresy, <laughs> I guess, for New England clam chowder. Okay, and then you add, it tells you to add some Worcestershire sauce, a dash of Worcestershire sauce before serving. Worcestershire sauce and seafood is really just a great combination. Yes. And it's, again, umami. Boom. Like, I could have added some of the, um, what is it, accent? It's basically MSG. The MSG, that would have done as well. Yeah, but it doesn't have the tamarind mm, right. of Worcestershire sauce. Exactly. Was the yeah, dash Worcestershire. You also got for a dash of hot sauce. I didn't bother with that. Uh, I, I, we everyone's really sensitive to hot sauce, except for a few of us. So I've, I've I'm starting to realize I need to not even do a little bit of that. Uh, it, it was fine, and it was really good. Like Isabella was saying, this is like restaurant chowder, clam chowder. It was. My my disappointment with a lot of home chowder recipes is they're always too thin. For me, clam chowder needs to be thick. Not like thick like mashed potato thick, but it needs to be thick and creamy. And this measured up. It was perhaps the best clam chowder I've had outside of a restaurant and maybe including restaurant clam chowders. It was so good. And the next day and today, so we had it. I made it two days ago. I had some leftovers yesterday and I had the, the, the last of the leftovers today. Like a lot of things, chowders get better in the fridge overnight. And it was so good. <laughs> Let me tell you, I would eat it tomorrow if we still had some. It was so, I, I loved it. Um, now, I'm going to have to collect 10 cups of shellfish broth <laughs> again before I can before I can make it again. But uh, that's probably a good thing because uh, it's, it's, it, was, it was somewhat involved. I mean, what do you th- what did you think? Now I'm a huge clam chowder fan. It was you- it was tasty. Yeah, it was good. Um, do you like your chowders thinner though? I maybe just a a hair thinner. Like yeah. I don't like it liquidy, but this was on the thicker side. So I could have um, added more broth. Also, I'm not really sure. I can't quite put my finger on it. There was, I don't maybe it was just. Was there something missing? I think I was just not really in the mood for chowder. Oh, okay. I, I don't think, I don't think it was anything particular about the recipe. I honestly just think that maybe it was more like, this is, this is good, but it's not what I'm in the mood for. Okay. Okay. Which, so it's, fair. it's hard to tell, you know, when you're just kind of not in the mood for something like if, yeah. you know, it's just. It's harder to judge. Sure, sure. No, I I agree. I see that. Um, I could have added more broth or a little less flour to to be not as thick. Um, but you like it thick. I, I'm fine with that. So yeah. you're, you're more picky about it than I am. Okay. Not picky. No, no. I, I have particular tastes when it comes to chowder. So I have like something like... <laughs> Um, how many other recipes for chowder do I have? I have a whole bunch. I have like a dozen different chowder recipes. I don't know why there's a Manhattan clam chowder recipe in our cookbook, but it doesn't belong there. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I wouldn't have put it there. Yes. Somebody's taunting me. Anyway, I have eight clam chowder recipes, seven other clam chowder recipes, including, by the way, Woodman's clam chowder, mm. which Woodman's is one of the most famous um, seafood places around. We We went there once when Bella was a toddler yeah well we went several and times sophie though. was a baby yeah do we go more than once well i, I went remember. i went there once for part of my bachelor party my my bachelor i day. was not there you were not there no no i'm saying but i i know i've been there more than more than that those two times um maybe i went with paul or something like that perhaps i don't think i've been more than yeah. maybe twice i mean i love their 
fried clams. It's they they call themselves the place the um, inventor of the fried clam, uh, and their fried clams are really good. But their chowder is really really awesome. Can you be the inventor of the fried clam? Well, someone had to be the first one to f- do fried clams, I suppose. <laughs> so, and and it wasn't a thing until actually not that long ago, like about 60, 70 years ago, like the 1930s. Like no one did breaded fried clams before. It wasn't it wasn't a thing. So the other recipe I wanted to talk about was uh, what we had tonight. And this was an, something a recipe I picked up from a website called natashaskitchen.com. I got some Russian the, the remember the Zarkoya Russian beef stew uh-huh. that I made several years ago. Now, I think I got it from there, or or it might have been the um the other one, which was the 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 cabbage rolls, which were pretty good. They were okay. Um, there were way too many of them. <laughs> way too many. So um, so she has this recipe. She calls it lemon chicken recipe with lemon butter sauce, which is a strange name. I call it Parmesan chicken with lemon butter sauce. So the 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 recipe calls for it. Chicken cutlets, like take chicken breast, slice it in half horizontally so they're thinner. And then you have an egg mixture of egg, garlic, Italian seasoning, quote unquote, salt and pepper. You dip the chicken in that. And then you have a Parmesan cheese mixed with um, all-purpose flour. You dip it in that and then you fry it in a pan and you set it aside. And then you have a butter sauce of butter, garlic, lemon juice, chicken broth that you... um simmer up together separately and then pour over the chicken when, when it's done. I needed to do something a little different. Um, I didn't want to do like a whole bunch of chicken breasts. I had, a, but I did have a lot of chicken, boneless chicken thighs. So I cut those up into like sort of tender chicken, tender size pieces. Right. I did them in the egg mixture. I didn't, I don't have Italian seasoning. So I had uh, onion powder, garlic powder, oregano, thyme, and basil. Uh, a little bit of each and salt and pepper. And then for the breading mixture, I had, I actually used some Parmesan Reggiano and some Asiago and some Romano cheese that I had in the fridge. And I did those up, but I actually ran out partway through the cooking. So I just grabbed the, we have, we do have the jarred pre-grated cheese with cellulose in it, Parmesan cheese. And so I just dumped a bunch of that in there with some more flour and frankly, I couldn't tell the difference. So for this purpose, don't waste the expensive uh, good cheeses. Just use from the jar pre-grated cheese. Uh, so the chicken, it's, and then I didn't pour the sauce over the chicken because we have kids who don't like sauce. And so just make it easier that way. So um, the that was the echo telling me unnecessary information about books that I might want to buy from Amazon. So. Um, the chicken itself was fine. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, it, and was, it, it was crunchy. It was it was cheesy. It was it was yummy. Yeah, and the most of the kids were were they liked it. <laughs> Lucy does this thing where she turns up her nose at something right away. I'm 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 angry because I don't I'm not going to like it. And then finally I coax her to try it, and she and then she like chows down on it because she loves it and like just try it. Whereas others are I'm not going to like it, and you know, you can't make me like it and even if you make them take a bite they're so determined to not like it that they won't that that they won't eat it they won't even give it a fair shake there was only one who did that this time um the sauce itself it's kind of a lemony um uh scampi sauce basically uh butter and garlic with lemon juice 
We, but the proportions were wrong, I think. The, it was way too buttery and not enough lemony. Yes. I think with almost every recipe that we have that we we try that that's a lemon recipe, like, you know, lemon chicken or lemon, whatever, there's never enough lemon. Never enough lemon. It's kind of weird. And so I think what I would do next time is. Think, maybe we just are like lemon fiends. Maybe we, yeah, maybe we loved the, uh, the, the lemon a lot. We're lemon pe- people. Well, what, so what I would change is I'd use less butter next time. A lot less butter. A lot less like butter. half. Yeah. Instead of a cup, I'd use, you know, half a cup or one, one stick of butter. Was it, no, one stick is almost one a stick cup. of butter is half. A so cup. I'd use like like a quarter, like four tablespoons because it's because uh, eight tablespoons. Stick of butter is eight. Ta- Actually, <laughs> no, Did you put too much butter in. You're the one who told me that 10 tablespoons was a stick of butter. It was a cup. I said eight tablespoons is a stick. That's half a cup. Um, How many sticks did I use? <laughs> No, no, I don't. I didn't use two sticks of butter. I used one stick. I used. Te, I did one stick of butter plus two tablespoons. Yeah. So it was way less butter than she called for. It was still too buttery. It was still too buttery. Yeah, that's weird. Like she, she called. So, so she's like the Paula Deen of Russian cooking. Uh, maybe. So I would use like, uh, like five tablespoons of butter, four tablespoons of butter, four cloves of garlic. I'd go from half a cup of lemon. I might either boost it to three quarter cup of lemon or and maybe also zest. So it has some like the minced microplane zest, lemon zest in there, too. Yeah, I would go for the zest. Yeah. And then uh, half a cup of chicken broth. I think, yeah, that, I think that would really bump up the lemon. So I, I would say this was a three out of five star meal. You know, the chicken was good. Um, it was smoky, so it's. Set off the smoke detectors. Yeah, I would have maybe cooked it at a slightly lower temperature just to kind of. I did. It was a little overcooked. I did turn it down a uh, a bit. Some of the pieces, the early pieces, were overcooked. But yeah, I had a our stove like is medium high. You have to set like like at halfway. (laughs) It's just our our stove does is really hot. You you usually don't. Usually, I usually put it too high. high. I know. So yeah, next time uh, I'm working on keeping the temperature down on this on the the uh, pan but you know and we served it with rice but we all reflected that it would have been better with pasta with spaghetti probably um you know you could even add some like onion and mushroom to the to the lemon butter sauce yeah yeah saute up some onions and and mushroom and And, add it and garlic well the garlic there's already garlic in it yeah but you could saute the garlic yeah yeah well that would reduce the garlic flavor but it would mellow it out some so yeah anyway those what we were that's what we've been cooking so uh, i'll put links in the show notes to both so let's talk about what we've been reading and watching so i finally finished the golden enclaves the third book in the scholomance trilogy by naomi novik that you finished i finished a month ago <laughs> and i finally finished it so um spoiler free discussion of the book we both really enjoyed it it was not perfect but um i really enjoy what novik is doing with the concepts of um good and evil and sin uh it feels like she like i'm not sure she 
she she sees it as sin per se, but the concept of um, a sort of collective guilt for sin. Well, yeah, I mean, what she, what she's exploring is the idea that her magical system says that if you cheat and you um use use power drawn from another living being that there is there is eventually a consequence you don't necessarily see it but evil comes into the world evil beings which hurt want to hurt, eat and hurt right magicians come into being when they cheat when somebody cheats cheats by doing by so the way the way magic works is you need to create a store of magical energy and you can either do that the hard way which is by working out by doing physical labor or other kinds of things that's the hard way or you can cheat and steal that life energy that magical life energy from another living being and you could do it by stealing it from an ant which you get very little of it or other persons and you can steal a little bit or a lot and but when you do that it affects you and um it it makes you tainted but it also creates the um the existence of this free form sort of malia she calls it um in the world that eventually becomes a malevolent magical creature that hunts uh magic users people who use magic the us normies are fine we don't encounter them at all but it's so it's only magical uh, people who encounter them and so that's this question of can you live your life without uh engaging in the this sin basically this sinful thing that creates and it's kind of interesting because the catholic concept of sinfulness is that our sin is never just personal for us alone when we sin our sin has a collective consequence in the world it creates more brokenness in the world uh, it's like um a classic catholic theological description would be like uh poisonous sap in the tree you know we are one of the roots of the tree and we're we're creating poison in the tree and the tree is the tree of humanity you know and so uh, all of our sin has a collective consequence and this is where it is objectively real um consequences yeah i really loved that doing evil even small acts of evil the the you know the venial sin of evil right the 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 white lies the the small bits of like it doesn't even affect you personally but it it collectively over time builds up and creates real consequences if not for you then for somebody somebody is going to pay the the price somebody is going to suffer and eventually it leads to the the acceptance of great evil right in the world for people who are afraid who have, you know they that they've been caused to be afraid by the, by all of the small evil growing and growing to create a great evils and so it also shows how venial sins can lead to mortal sins right i I would say that this book the the series is in a lot of ways sort of moral realism which is a great category that i can't remember somebody introduced me to not long ago yeah um where you know it's magic there's there's not a lot of it's it's fantasy 
But morally speaking, you know, evil deeds have evil consequences. Good deeds have good consequences. So the moral fabric of the universe is. Right. But yet our protagonist, our hero, is not uh, is not a um, happy faced saint, shall we say. No. No, Elle is she's grumpy. She's angry. She's, you know, self-righteous at times. She's kind of arrogant at times. I really like her. She's she's an incredibly flawed protagonist. Yes, she's a flawed hero. But but I really came to to love her in her right grumpy. But she really is a hero. She wants to help people and do good, and she wants to fight against what she sees in herself as the temptation to evil. Um, she resists this idea that she is fated to be uh, an evil sorceress. Um, that that comes up in the first book. Um. It's not a perfect book or series, um, especially in this book. There are a couple of scenes of um, gratuitous sexual activity. Yeah, I would not recommend the books for young teen readers, it's, unfortunately. Yeah. It's not descriptive, but you know what's going on. I Right. I, you know, when people ask me, you know, is would this be appropriate for my teen? I'm like, probably not. I wouldn't let our teens read it not not yeah not Yet. younger than 17 or 18 i guess right which is kind of too bad because i think that if you know she'd written it without some of that content like it would be a really good story for younger readers <laughs> but it's i mean it's dark yeah people die people hurt each other in bad ways right it, it i have at least one friend who said she read the first book and was so profoundly disturbed by the darkness <coughs> that she couldn't go on. And she was sad yeah. that she read it. So it is a dark, bleak world for a good reason. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm not sure. Like Isabella, even without those scenes that we talked about, I'm not sure her personality. She would she would be very oppressed by it. By the dark bleakness of the story. Right. At least now. I mean, maybe when she's older, she'll right. be able to to handle more. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's if you're sensitive to to darkness and evil in stories, this is definitely not the series for you. And it's it's not a Harry Potter ripoff, but it almost feels like a, a bit of a, a, a a side mission is to is a sort of commentary on it. There there is a lot in the series that Works, yeah, as a sort of almost gloss on a lot of contemporary YA magical fiction. Yeah. So on Harry Potter, there's also strong references to Gregory Maguire's Wicked. Uh, There's a lot of Tolkien references. Well, the main character's name is Galadriel. Yeah. Right. Um, Call her L. Which. I really like a lot of what Naomi Novik is doing because she kind of seems to be looking at Harry Potter, looking at the world that Rowling has created and saying, yeah, but if you did this or if you pushed this to its logical conclusion and it feels like there is there is a sort of implicit critique. Yeah. Of. Well, Rowling has a tendency to kind of wave her hand at some of the consequences if, where if you took things that she writes to their logical end, she sort of waves those away. Like that, that's, you know, Hogwarts is a horrific place when you think about it, <laughs> you know, when you delve into it. I think we've talked about this before. So Naomi Novak, the, the, who wrote the Scholar Man series, 
she doesn't wave it away. She doesn't look away from the the bad, and she she lets us all look at it and go, no, this is the the consequence of how, of this kind of world and this right. kind of thing existing. So that that's actually it was really good. Um, I, I do like the fact that it's it's set in the real world. So there's it's a world in which there is the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and these other things that exist in our world that right. they have to also deal with, including smartphones and stuff like that. Yeah, this the, the, the final book was kind of fun because it's sort of the after graduation after they've left school. And so all the things that we only heard about distantly in the first two books, we got to actually see like L with a cell phone, which was yes, which was fun because her first phone, her first ever cell phone. Not because she, not because she dis, uh, disdained it because she was magical, but because she, her, she's poor. <laughs> her mom is sort of a hippie, and they lived in a commune for her whole life, so she never had money or any any technology. So right, it yeah. was it was kind of fun on that level to to see more of the world firsthand. Yeah, good world building. It, very Naomi Novik is really good at world building. I recommend all of her books. They're all good. I mean, the Temeraire series is where she started. She's really grown as an author. I mean, Temeraire series is still good. The later books kind of Peter, Peter off. Peter off. The, the the not enough butter for too much bread. Uh, I think, but her books since then, especially Spinning Silver. Um, what was the that first one? Uprooted. The, uprooted. Right. Uprooted. Spinning Silver. And uh, the the Man series, I can't I can't wait for what she's got next because uh, I will I'll read anything she writes now because she's everything's been a hit. So I really enjoy her stuff. So you said you've been making some progress on her book this week. Uh, yeah, I w- was kind of at a loss this this week as to what what to read next. You know, every once in a while you you hit that slump in between books and you don't have anything sort of slated for next up. Sure. Uh, or maybe you don't. <laughs> I have a long list. I, I generally do, but nothing on my list when I looked at it w- was hitting the spot. Oh, anyway, that happens to me. Yeah. I, I I ended up settling on John Le Carre. I've never read any of his books, but they've come up in several recent conversations over the past, you know, six months or so. And I thought, I'll give him a try. So I did. I picked up the first book in the George Smiley series, uh, which was called Calling the Dead. Calls, Calls for the Dead. Calls for the Dead. Um, and it's a classic, you know, British spy novel. Um, John Le Carre actually worked for this British Secret Service. And so it's it's the kind of the genre that Ian Fleming also created the... James Bond, yeah. Right. The sort of real world inspired spy novel cold war spy novels yeah. yeah so yeah this is this is in the i want to say 60s i think it's 60s and the 60s yeah. um and it's fun it's very just straightforward spy novel one thing i really liked actually about the book is that there's a point at which our hero um who is classic like he was he was recruited in college uh, from Oxford and at the time when the secret service was very like loosey goosey. Oh, right. And he spent the world war two in Germany, part, at least part of the world war in Germany, recruiting agents there. Um, so he's very sort of intellectual elite sort of ivory tower, but he's, he's, he's done his dues in the field. Okay. Um, 
there's a point at which he has to work with a police officer with a cop and he seems to be kind of like there's a really interesting exploration of their spheres of competence where you can see where the the police officer is not competent at spycraft and doesn't understand the spy world and the secret agent is not competent in police work and they both kind of have moments when they look at the other and they're like you just really don't get this Right. And and it takes both of their skill sets to solve the problem. Like you really need the policemen to do the footwork and to like actually do the police investigating, mm. which is a different skill set from spy, you know, intrigue. It was kind of fun, like to see he, how clearly he made the distinctions between the two. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you would just you didn't even call them. You didn't try, you didn't go there. You didn't do this. The police officer says like, he's kind of incredulous that why wouldn't you, you, you have to do the work. I've seen a couple, some that must be inspired by Lakari because others where you have this intersection between, you know, this is how a cop does this and this is how a spy does this. And yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah. Um, I, I did figure out, I, I'm not quite through, but I'm in this sort of after the, re- the big revelation part of the book where we're wrapping things up uh-huh. and I, I was proud of myself. I, I figured out the, the twist. Oh, good job. Uh, so I say that without, uh, I'm patting, I'm yeah. patting myself on the yes, back. I give you a pat on the back. Yes. <laughs> I say that as, as someone who likes to figure out the twist ahead of time. I, I frequently don't. And so I was, I was happy to have, to have been insightful enough to, to follow that. <laughs> I feel like there's another book I read this week, but I, can't for the life we'll have, of me recall it we'll have to talk about it next so, time if, if i recall it if there was indeed who knows yep all right so we watched andor episode seven star wars andor so good so what we, we were talking about what makes this series different and i think one of the things that makes it so different from all other star wars is when it's set it is set when the empire is is in its full power when there is no, when rebellion is essentially the, all that exists of rebellion is people with individual acts of anger striking back. There's no organized attempt to undermine or take down the empire. Then in fact, it's, that just seems more, impossible. More, right. It's more like defiance rather than rebellion at right. this point, like individual acts of pushing back against the big evil power, but nobody can quite imagine actually taking down the empire. And you, it feels like there are these two, poles or two paths that are laid before us in this episode. There's the path of Luthen is one character who's one of the organizers of, of these rebellious activities. And his is a very, um, not pragmatic, but very um, cold calculating, you know, it doesn't matter if, if the little people get hurt, as long as we're hurting the empire sort of thing, collateral damage doesn't really matter as much to him. Right. Whereas then there's Mon Mothma, the Senator, who has an ideal idealist um, attitude who's about hope and change and making the galaxy a better place. And, and this tension will exist until rogue one. Right. I really see that. Yeah. I think that uh, Luthen is much more the Sam Adams. Yes. And Mon Mothma is the John Adams of the nascent rebellion. That's a good way of putting it. Like, if you remember Saw Gerrera from Rogue One, he's another one like Luthen. Yeah, he's. Yeah, Saw Gerrera, 
I think is much more even further out there than like Sam Adams. He's a terrorist. He he is. He yeah. is. I mean, honestly, the, the name kind of points you to Che Guevara. Right. Right. There, there's a there's a rhyme. There's there. a clear connection. And uh, I think that you're supposed to see him as the sort of radical revolutionary. Uh, there are there are no lines that he won't cross. Right. Some people complain that it's too dark. It doesn't feel like Star Wars. I think part of that is because there's no space magic and no lightsabers. No, no Jedi. No Jedi. Uh, but I think it's also because of the kind of story we're telling at a t- the time we're telling it. Again, before there's a rebellion, you know, Jin Urso in Rogue One says rebellions are built on hope. We're not there yet. We're not on the, the part of where rebellion is built on hope. And honestly, that's one of the things I really like about it. I like this exploration of this particular time period. We don't have the Jedi and things because in part, this is an exploration of what the world looks like in the absence of the hope that the Jedi provide. Which was kind of where Kenobi started. But Kenobi had a Jedi as his main character, so we still have space wizards and stuff. Right, Kenobi was a very different kind of story. Yeah. It felt like a new hope. It felt like the rest of Star Wars. Right. I, but I, I think that Andor actually, ironically, it kind of spe- feels like a, a spy thriller. In oh, it's a way. definitely a spy thriller, like a Lakari sort of story, like a Jason Bourne sort of story. Right. I mean, that's how it feels. I mean, for a time, it felt like a, a heist movie. You know? there, there was a good heist in it. I, lo- yeah. I like a good heist story. So, I, I do like it. I and I'm curious where things are unspooling. It's a 12 episode season, so th- there's time for things to happen. There's not a frenetic, frantic pace. Again, some people have complained that it's, it's too slow. I like the the, the ability like, to stop and talk about things. I, I I like the slower, more deliberate pace. I feel like it allows more time for characters develop to develop, and I really like character driven stories. Right. Um, the go 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 action stuff kind of loses me like i want the time to understand the characters and i like the fact that we've got a fairly big cast of characters that we're exploring right Uh, interesting characters from all the the range of places to start from from the inside the empire's bureaucracy another guy who we're not sure failed imperials some sort i don't know uh the the uh the former security guy um, we knows where he's going. Uh, and then Cashin and Luthen and Mon Mothma, who is she's not yet in her full flowering of political power and being in charge of the rebellion. She's still somewhat tentative. She's still right, right. early in her rebel rebelliousness. And we're still seeing the the the, the tensions in, too in her personal life where she's got this husband who is clearly not on board with the rebellion. And there's a lot of marital tension going on. And her daughter doesn't really like how does she factor in? So I think right. part of Mon Mothma's t- timidness is that she's she's a mom and a wife. I have a bad feeling about her family because they don't yeah. show up in any of the later stuff. So either they leave, which is <laughs> this which would is be sad. the better option, or they die, which might be uh, coming. I, I would not be surprised if if the story went there. Yeah. So it's 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 been really good. I'm 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 always looking forward to the next episode, and it's um. It's yeah, just it's been it's good. I recommend it. So I feel like there's been a lot less chatter on social media about Andor than about the Mandalorian or Kenobi. Maybe that's well, just the circles I'm in, but none, no, almost nobody that I know is is watching it. Well, there's no cute Muppet. I mean, we don't have uh, you know Grogu to draw people in. 
This is true. It is not as funny and lighthearted as Mandalorian and Boba Fett can be at times. There, there are, I mean, they're serious, but there's also light, more lighthearted moments as well. Um, so it doesn't have that sort of thing. I think there might be a little bit of Star Wars fatigue. I think, yeah, I think Andor appeals to more serious fans. Yeah, yeah, it's although I would think that it might have some crossover appeal to people who like, for oh, example, spy spy it, stories. It should, but I also think that there's less criticism of it. I mean, there was criticism of Kenobi and end of Book of Boba Fett, and that generates buzz. There's been less criticism of this, which may mean that people like it. Too. Possibly, um, you know, we can start some conversations online about it. Let's see what see what see if people react if people are watching it. We watched, uh, we finally got after a few weeks off of watching Marvel movies. We got back to uh, Marvel movies. We watched Spider-Man No Way Home. Like I said, we've skipped Eternals because that's not really, not really, it feels extraneous to the rest of Marvel, frankly. Um, and this stuff in it that was not really, we thought the kids would, would be appropriate for the kids. Um, what We also skipped Moon Knight. Also kind of. Too violent. Too I violent think. and scary. And also doesn't really tie in. To the rest wise, of, yeah. to, to anything we've seen so far. And that, some of the younger kids might be confused by the plot lines and that, because even we found some of it a little confusing at times. So um, it's, it's one I might revisit when they're older yeah. or when it becomes more like if it becomes more relevant to right. major plot points. We're not going to watch Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness because that's way too dark. It's dark and I don't really like what they did with Wanda. So yeah. in my own head canon, I'm kind of pretending that didn't happen. That didn't, it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, I, I liked where they t- they left Wanda at the end of Wanda Vision, yeah. And I felt like they erased the Multiverse of Madness. Erased one of well, yeah. I mean, it's a somewhat logical progression, but it was still a lot. Yeah, it, it didn't. It wasn't a good place to go with her. All right, I want to. We're 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 pushing time here, so okay. I want to move on and we'll talk about Spider Man, which we did watch Spider Man No Way yes. Home, uh, which was also ends in a sort of dark place. I really liked the movie through most of it. I liked the three Spider Men working together. That spoilers. was spoilers. Oh, sorry, <laughs> spoilery. But at this point, it's been a year. You, you know, okay. so. Um, what I didn't necessarily like was. Again, where they where they dropped the ending. The um, the forgetting. I liked the moment of choice that Peter has as a character, the hero moment of what is this going to cost? And I like that fixing the problem. Came at a personal cost. Yes, I that he took the and he and he had the maturity to do to take that. That part I liked. What I didn't like was that they doubled down on the tendency of Peter's character. And this was, this has been throughout. Throughout the Spider-Man time. All the Spider-Man franchises. Peter is overly cautious and overly unwilling to take risks, especially. With other people. Risks with people. And I felt like this was like. One step forward, two steps back. In that he he made a movement forward and then they pulled him back at the beginning like, oh, no, we didn't really want to go there. They 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 opened up this door where the world knows Peter Parker's identity and the world hates him for it. 
because of what they think he did in from the previous movie. And so now he 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 wants people to forget who he is. So he tries to take a shortcut by getting Doctor Strange to make a spell for people to forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And then they have this silly thing where he keeps changing in the midst of the spell, which causes a disaster for the movie. And it's, I, that whole bit was hard for me to believe because it's someone, someone was saying recently, but the Roger Ebert had the idiot plot fallacy, which is um, a plot that only advances when the characters are idiots or act like an idiot. And this is like, okay, stop. Like, stop being an idiot. Stop changing the the, the parameters of the spell in the midst of the spell. That's not well, a good also, thing. Right. It, it, and that only works because Doctor Strange has apparently learned nothing about being cautious in magic and didn't work out the parameters. Ahead of time. Ahead of time. Uh, what exactly Peter. do you want me to do? This is exactly what I'm going to do. And then you can, you and that, that's it. And we're no more. It like, did not feel true to Doctor Strange's character yeah. as has been established. And it didn't really feel true to well it didn't do justice to peter it didn't right it made him it made him like he's a kid again and that's that's one of the flaws of the writing of the spider-man is they wanted this spider-man as opposed to the andrew garfield or the toby mcguire spider-man to be younger you know high school kid right. and even like the andrew garfield's spider-man was in high school but he read older so this one is younger and they make him act too immature too often Right. Like, it feels like they really are are going strongly for the high school drama vibe, which which was fine in the first and second movie. But by this point, he needs to he's needs to have grown. They, yeah, they, I wanted them to let the character mature. He's on the verge of graduating from high school, going to college. His his decision making, his thinking should have grown somewhat, at least by this point. Right. I'm I'm fine with him. I mean, obviously he's he's still there's still room for him to make mistakes, but I just felt like they're not quite letting him grow up. There's this almost a Peter Pan sort of vibe yeah. going on. Yeah, where he, he needs to learn from his mistakes. Right, and they don't allow, they don't allow him to. They don't let him. They have not let him grow, and so by the end of the movie, he's in this place that's not great and and that's it feels like we've been doing this with a lot of the marvel stuff lately is is leaving people in in bad places this phase four just feels weird compared to the rest of marvel you know we at the end game we've killed off several characters uh the the avengers are kind of falling apart and we have all of these bad encounters for the various heroes i mean i suppose that it's possible that I, I watched, you know, most of them, the Marvel phase one, phase two after they'd come out and I wasn't right. waiting for the movies. So it's possible that what I'm experiencing in is some, some of that lag where these, these plot lines are going to eventually be resolved in later movies. And they're setting up like, this is, this is the middle of, this is the two towers. Maybe this is, you know, a two towers moment where we're not done with Peter's character yet. So we, we haven't got to that point. There's another stage in his journey. Right. Um, so that's possible. That's not 
clear when you're in the middle of it. Like, at least when you're beating the two towers, you know that there's like a whole nother. You can look at and see Return of the King sitting there on your shelf going, hi, I'm waiting for you. And I guess this is the frustration of experiencing it as it's being published, as it's as it's being written, because we don't know yet for sure that it's going to come to a satisfactory conclusion. So maybe this is me needing to be more patient. Maybe. I mean, but the thing is, I've watched them as they've come out and I've <laughs> I, I, I feel a similar way. So it's, I'm not sure. Right. It, it's just that I'm I'm I'm. Trying to wait patiently <laughs> to see what unfolds, but right. I am having a hard time. So liking the direction right now, I think the next thing, the next new thing coming out from Marvel is going to be Black Panther, the Wakanda forever. I have seen the the trailers and I am rather excited about that. It looks yeah. good. The question is, is do we end in a dark place again? I'm not sure. I've, I mean, it starts in a dark place because uh, T'Challa is dead because uh, the Chad Bozeman, Chadwick Bozeman has died and they're not recasting it. So uh, it'd be interesting to start there with this story so we'll, we'll have to see how that goes but uh but it looked good so we'll we'll see how we we'll see what happens i did see the trailer today for the new ant-man as well oh right Quant- quantum mania ant-man has not, never been i mean you know it's not yeah. my it's not my favorite part of the you don't like franchise. the slapstick humor no it's yeah it's not my style so it's okay it's not my thing before we move on, I want to talk about one more thing that I've okay. been started watching. So on Amazon Prime, there's a new series called The Peripheral based on William Gibson novel. Interesting. And so it's a really interesting premise. The it takes place in two different time periods. So there's the there's a time period of 2030, about 10 years from now, 2032, I guess, in Appalachia. OK. And there's a, a young adult woman, um, say early 20s. Her brother, who's an army or military veteran, I think a Marine veteran, and their mom, who has cancer, living in Appalachia. And the brother makes his living by through uh, gaming, but as a gaming with rich people and kind of leading them through the VR games. And the games now are super realistic and all this sort of stuff. And he uses his military training, which actually is useful in the games now. And the... um but the sister's even better than him at games. And so there's so there's a little of that in there. But they're really close. The family is actually really close and it's a really nice thing there. So he gets a um a beta test for hardware from this mysterious company. It's going to pay him a, a bunch of money to test this new VR stuff. And but he's he's um feeling sick. So he like he's got VR sickness or whatever. He's been in the game too long. And she jumps in for him to get it started. And she ends up in this ultra realistic simulation. She can feel everything, pleasure, pain, all of her, you know, uh, limbs. It's like she's there. And she is. She's, there's a quantum tunneling where their, their consciousness can be connected to 100 years in the future. Uh, where they can be, they're in control of something called a peripheral, which is basically a remote control drone robot that looks like them. And so I've only watched the first two episodes. There's a lot of action. Um, it's by the people who make Westworld, but there's a hundred percent less naked robots sitting around. So 
there there was there have been some like nudity warnings but there hasn't been any nudity yet so you know take that with a grain of salt <laughs> the, the possibility that of that sort of thing but it's really good so far i'm really enjoying it it's a very interesting premise um and an interesting mystery of what's really going on and the the tech the imagination of the tech 10 years from now and 100 years from now are both very interesting and a friend of mine who's read the book that it's based on says if they if they're if they're getting um at all faithful to the book just wait there's even better stuff coming so it'll be interesting to see um yeah so that's called the peripheral on um amazon prime starring chloe grace moretz which is a name of it sounds familiar but i i didn't recognize anything she's been in so i'm not sure why her name is familiar to me no guarantees what happens in episode three or anything after that, because I haven't seen them. <laughs> so if something happens, don't complain to me. Uh, all right. Quickly, let's talk about the hom- the, the the readings and homily from this past Sunday. Uh, it was the 30th Sunday, ordinary time. The first reading was from Sirach. Um, the second reading was from Second Timothy. And the gospel was from Luke. And it was about the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee who says, oh, God, thank you. I thank you. You didn't make me like this loser over here, um, which is a really bad look. Right. Uh, so we were able to have Father Matt, our pastor, again, which was two weeks in a row, which is awesome, given that um, he's got three parishes. And so uh, we, we often go a couple of months without seeing him. And I love his homilies. They're really great. Uh, he started by talking about something he learned in, in seminary in which he was taught that uh, beware of eye disease in preaching. Right. Where the, the, the homilist keeps saying I, and they make it, they're the, homil- the, they're the center of the story instead of Jesus being right. the center of the story. So always ask yourself, who is the hero of the homily? When people walk away, who's the person that they're thinking of? <laughs> make sure it's not you <laughs> is what was, he was told. Uh, so I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, he talked about, you know, where was Paul in his life when he was writing to Timothy uh, in this letter? This was Paul was at the end of his life. Um, his execution was near. He was older. Timothy is young, his young protege. And so he's trying to pass on his final wisdom to Timothy to take with him. And so he talks about being poured out like a libation. And I'm glad that Father stopped to explain what a libation is. Uh, right. A libation is an offering to the gods or to God by which you usually pour out a drink on, you know, to the ground. Like I'm sacrificing some of this drink or whatnot um, so that I can't consume it, but for you, God. Um, so I'm poured out like a libation. So you can picture that I'm, I'm given up as an offering to God poured out. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've got nothing left in the tank. Um, and how he talks about um, the time of my departure is at hand. And he also explained how the the word that's translated here as departure in the Greek has the connotation of setting sail. The time for my setting sail is at hand, which setting sail means it's not the end. It's just a new beginning. You're on a journey. You know, this is where oftentimes I feel like translation just doesn't. This doesn't is, do justice. This is why if you can at all try to get to the original language and its idioms, because it really opens things up. 
But I love this because of the imagery it gives me from the Lord of the end of the Lord of the Rings, you know, of Frodo and the others setting sail from the Grey Havens to head into the Outer West to to, you know, the, the Undying Lands. And that's kind of the imagery that Paul has here. He's about to not end, but to just to move on to something new. Right. We have father made a great point talking about how this was um, the beginning of a journey. Yes. And, and, and so, yeah, that new beginning, that journey that has, you know, to, to give to, to someplace new to, to start again. And that that new place will be heaven. Um, He talks about the next verse. I have competed well. I finished the race. Um, And I'm not sure father landed this point uh, well, but he was saying that um, struggle is good for us. Like fighting. He kept saying fighting is good. And he does. He he, he did say, I don't mean fisticuffs, but I mean like fighting. (laughs) It's like competition is good. Struggle to succeed is good. Having obstacles to overcome and work at to to be better. That's what he, what it means. I, so Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Yeah, the, the, this translation says I've competed well. It, other translations say I've fought the good fight. And um, yeah, competed well just feels really limp. Yeah, like if, so, if someone tells me, uh, like I say, how'd you, how'd you do in the race? I competed well. But how'd you do? Like, like how, like, how was the race? Well, I think Father made a good point, which is that I finished not, the not race. Not how did you finish, but yeah. Right. You know, the, the, Paul doesn't actually say, I won the race. He said, I finished the race. Yes. And Father talked about a friend of his who was running the Boston Marathon um, and was... Was going to give up. Was, was sure that he was not going to finish the race. And Father Matt said, this was, you know, long ago when he was young. Yes, in seminary. Uh, said that he would join his friend for the last the last m- five miles i think it was something like that the, the last leg of the race because um, the, the the it was the boston marathon and, it, and the boston marathon goes right by not on mass ave because that's not mass ave it's commonwealth ave right commonwealth. You, i was going to correct him uh after mass but i didn't go <laughs> he would love that. Anyway, uh, it goes right by Commonwealth Ave down into Boston. And so he was going to run with him. I don't think he was going to run the whole re- rest of it. He was just going to run with him down to Cleveland Circle. So like a mile. So well, I thought he was going to run him with him to the finish line. Maybe. Whatever it was. Um, but it was that that encouragement, the cheering, the and father, I was like, they were cheering for all the runners. And I'm like, I felt like a fraud because I wasn't, I didn't even run the whole race. I just, you know, jumped in 200 yards back there. But, um, Paul says, doesn't say he wins, but he finished. And that's what matters. It's not where you finish. It's just that you finish. You don't have to finish first. You can finish last, but finish. Um, it is better to fight the good fight and lose than to not fight the good fight at all. And I love that line. It is, it is better to, you know, if, if it comes down to it, if it's a fight to be fought, it is better to fight and lose than to run away from the fight and avoid and avoid the good fight. The good fight, like the one that needs to be fought. Right. So it's actually kind of where Andor is coming back to. Andor, yeah. Fighting the good fight. Yes. Rather than run away, fight the good fight. Um, and then he talked a lot about um, the gospel where the Pharisee is is arrogant, lacking in humility and self-awareness. And he says, sacrifice and worship requires self-awareness. 
you know, you have to be aware of where you stand with God, where you stand in yourself, who you are and what what your faults are, what your sins are, what you know, what you need to do better at. You need you need humility and you need humility. And so the Pharisee lacks it. And so he addresses his prayer to himself in his self-congratulatory speaking. He has eye disease. You know, he talks about himself. Oh, uh, you know, uh, aren't you wonderful, Lord, for making me as good as I am? I'm not like the rest of humanity. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine saying such a thing? Um, Of course, I see people do this all the time on social media, and maybe I've done it in the past myself. But um, people are sinners. But it's not my place to condemn them. And he and he goes beyond saying the rest of humanity are sinners. He then goes on to point out one particular sinner, like that guy. I like Father Matt pointing out that like the the, the tax collector, I mean that the Pharisee isn't isn't wrong when he says, you know, there are people out there committing these particular sins. This is true. There are. Right. But but the point is that's up to God to judge, not not us. Right. It's not his job. And the Pharisee's doing all the right things, right? He's fasting twice a week. He pays tithes on his whole income, right? He's not cutting corners. He's paying a whole tithe. And meanwhile, the tax collector, you got to know about tax collectors in this time. They were traitors to their people. They were collaborators working for the Romans. And it was expected that they were skimming off the top. So they were stealing from the Romans and their own people. And the Romans knew it. They knew that was just part of the cost of doing business. So tax collectors were reviled. Well, well, in fact, the Romans didn't actually pay the tax collectors. Like their, their salary came from the, the taxes skim. they collected. Right. Th- that, that was the, that was the deal that was baked in. Right. Um, but even then they were probably taking more than they should. So um, he talked about, you know, the tax collector, meanwhile, beating his breast and praying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like he's not talking about his virtues or the ways he's good. He And not even talking about his own sins. He's just asking God for mercy. He recognizes who, who he is, where he stands with God. Um, and uh, Father Matt mentioned the Jesus prayer. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, son of God. Have Lord mercy. Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right. That one. Um, and he said, humility is the first necessary virtue. Because it unties God's hands. See, I really liked the phrasing he used. I, I, I made a note of it. Yeah. Humility is crucial. Self-awareness. I like that crucial because, you know, yep. it brings us back to the cross. The cross. Yeah, that's it's right. Crucial. Yes, it is. Humility is crucial. It is the first necessary virtue because it unties God's hands. Right. As long as we're so full of ourselves that we aren't admitting to ourselves even that we're sinners, there's no room for God's mercy in our lives unless we ask for it. Like, we're, unless we recognize that we need it, we, we are shutting it out. Right. If, if you stand there and say, I am worthy, I am the best, God's going to say, well, apparently you don't, need, you don't need anything from me then. You know, I mean, he doesn't necessarily, not it's, literally does but it's that. Not, but. It's not punitive on God's part. It's, it's simply a rea- a re- it is the reality that when you are so full of yourself that you can't ad- acknowledge that you need help, that you are incapable of being helped. Mm-hmm. You're, you're pushing the help away actively. Right. So the, there's you are literally beyond help because anytime <laughs> any efforts to help you get shoved to the side. Right. I don't need your help. I, I don't want your grace. I don't want your mercy. I don't need it. Like, this is what the Pharisee is doing. He's saying, I don't need 
grace. I don't need mercy. I am already there. Right. Whereas the tax collector is opening the door by saying, have mercy on me. He's asking for the mercy. Like God has got the mercy like there ready to hand out. Like he's in fact shoving it at us. But if we're (laughs) pushing it away, God isn't going to like break through the barrier that we've put up. Like he respects our ability to say no. Right. We we have that, you know, ultimate integrity that, you know, if we say no, God's not going to force himself on us. He he added that the need for God's, the need for humility unlocks God's treasure house. That's what that last part of the the gospel is. The, you know, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, the God's got a treasure house ready for us. But in our humility, we'll unlock it. I thought that was profound as well. So, um, yeah. So another, another home yeah. run. Homily. I just want to say yeah. my, my favorite bit, yeah, which was actually back in the St. Paul to Timothy. He talked about like how Paul was very intense and perhaps a difficult man to <laughs> not, not warm and fuzzy. Right. And he, he compared him to Winston Churchill. Yes. I loved that comparison. Yeah. Um, the, the trying to negotiate with Winston Churchill was famously like trying to negotiate with a brass band. <laughs> that was a good line. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I sort of do love that about St. Paul, that intensity um, with yeah. which he, he often writes. And the fact that Father Matt brought up, you know, like, remember, Paul was a sinner himself. He was aware of his, of his history and his sins. He, he killed Christians. He was murdering Christians. In, in fact, the Christian community would not have really easily let him forget. No, no. There are plenty of people. The, the, the Twitter equivalent of the day would have kept reminding him of who he really is and what he used to do. Yeah, um, that's that's for sure. All right. So, uh, any other thoughts on that one? Is that, is that I think that's that's yeah. It. All right. So, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create raising the bets, including including Bennett G, Tara H, Francis B, Carla K, and Marilyn K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue raising the bets and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Follow Raising the Bets in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Until next time, I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest network you're sure to enjoy, The Secrets of Star Trek. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek.